So, the epiphany, the uh, manifestation, the appearance, the revelation of, uh, of the uh, gospel to the wise men. And uh, yesterday, uh, I was at the men's breakfast and we were talking about New Year's resolutions. Uh, and we, uh, people were sharing some of their new, new Year's resolutions. You know, resolutions are often, uh, we often choose new, new Year's resolutions which are related to our health. You know, want to exercise more or eat less garbage or whatever. Or it's usually related to our personal development. So we want to spend less time on our screens or we want to read more. We want to learn a certain skill. I want to suggest today that we uh, might also want to have a uh, New Year's resolution related to our worship. So a New Year's resolution related to our worship. So the wise men, uh, known as the Magi in the Bible, uh, were probably astrologers. And they probably came, well, they came from the East, we know, but they probably came from Persia, modern-day uh, Iran. Uh, They uh, probably worked at the courts uh, of the kings. Astrology was a sort of science back in that time. It was respected throughout the Greco-Roman world. And these magi, of course, are very unlikely candidates to to, to be one of the first people to receive this invitation to worship. Uh, They are very unlikely candidates because the Old Testament expressly forbids that you consult the stars about the future or, or, or to, to gain direction to life. So, so these magi, they're not simply harmless pagans, so to say. They're, they're pagans who are really breaking the law. They're unlikely characters. And at the same time, you see a, uh, a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, which says that nations will come to your lights and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And those kings will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So you see there that already from the beginning, before the story even takes place, the prophet Isaiah has shared this prophecy that people will come from far away. Kings, that's how we get this idea of kings from Isaiah. It doesn't say that they're kings in in the gospel readings. But kings who come to the brightness of your dawn bringing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. You wonder whether those magi far away in the east perhaps had access to the, the scroll of Isaiah, you know, from the, from the exile. Maybe they had read that prophecy. Maybe that's where they, they had the idea of this king to be born. We don't know. For us, the message uh, of the epiphany is that Jesus comes as savior, not just for his own people, the Jews, but for all, near and far. For us, this is, quite, uh, is maybe quite self-evident, but of course, in this first century, in this Jewish world, this was a very very puzzling and a very new message that God would come for all. The example of the Magi uh, brings this message home with force because, as I said, who are less likely candidates for God's grace than pagan law-breaking astrologers who live thousands of miles away from where the action is happening? The good news is that if this this good news was for them, it means it's also for us. As we saw, the Magi accepted the invitation uh, with joy, but it also came with a cost. Not only was the cost in terms of uh, the gifts that they brought, frank- uh, frankincense, myrrh and gold, all very precious, precious uh, artifacts, but of course they also make the costly and the long journey over those many thousands of miles. Traveling was dangerous in those days. So 
They are they're making a long and a costly and a dangerous journey, perhaps over many months. And they, they're also taking the cost of incurring Herod's wrath, right? Because Herod has said, come back to me, uh, tell me where the child's being born. And they decide to disobey him and to go back another way. So in all kinds of different ways, the, the wise men, the magi, are incurring costs. Another example is maybe the cost of their faith. Because what investment of faith must it have cost to follow a star in the sky? And not just to follow it for a day or for two days, but to follow it for months while it travels ahead. Certainly at some point they must have thought, we're absolutely crazy, we're following this star through the sky. So it, it takes an investment of faith as well to persevere on that journey. So it's not surprising that when the, when the trip pays off, that the reaction of the wise men is one of great joy. And on seeing Jesus, they bow down and they worship him. Does God still work in this way today? Does he still send signs like this to people far away? I recently heard a story that reminded me of the Magi. Uh, my mother knows a couple of people here in Holland who are also from the East. In fact, they, they happen to also be from Iran. And they became Christians after Jesus appeared to them in a dream. They uh, were Muslims and Jesus appeared to them in a dream. And then my mom asked one of these women, well, how did you know it was Jesus? And she said, I just knew. I just knew that I was seeing Jesus in my dream. Now, these are not isolated stories. If you follow the work of Open Doors, who supports persecuted Christians, if you follow uh, the work that Frontiers uh, does with uh, Rahman and Nelik, who are our mission partners you'll know that there are plenty of stories of Jesus appearing to people very far away in contexts that are not Christian, appearing to them in dreams, calling them to follow him in astonishing and powerful ways. It seems that the same God who sent a star in the past is still at work in miraculous ways today. But the consequences for people like these women that my mother spoke to, the consequences of people who... who become a Christian and who are perhaps from a, from a Muslim background, uh, they can be very severe. They are often uh, persecuted. They can be rejected by their community or family. Uh, many uh, people who convert and who move to the West, uh, uh, like the woman that my mom spoke to, are, don't even feel safe here in Holland because they're afraid of the secret police and the, the reach that the Iranian secret police might have. So you see here that for people like this, their worship is very costly. It really costs them. It costs them their, they have to move away from home. They might lose contact with their families. They might have to even fear for their well-being. Their worship comes with big sacrifices, just as uh, like for the Magi. So that then uh, caused me to think, well, what about our own worship? How costly is our, is our own worship? What precious offering do we bring? What, what sacrifices do we make? In, in what way does our faith cost us something? There's a story of King David in 2 Samuel 24. And David there wants to build an altar to the Lord. And he goes to the field of someone called Arauna, the Jebusite, and he offers to buy the field because he wants to build an altar on that field to the Lord. And Arana, this man, is presumably thrilled that a king wants his field 
to offer up a sacrifice. And so he freely offers to David everything that David might need for the sacrifice. He says this, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offerings. Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arana gives all of this to the king. So what is David's reaction to this very generous offer? But the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David doesn't want his worship to God to be cheap, to cost him not, uh, not to cost him something. Because he knows, of course, he knows that God is worthy. He knows how blessed he has been. Uh, he knows how loved he is. And he doesn't want his response to be inappropriate, to be lukewarm, to be cheap. Is that how we see our worship? Does our response to God reflect his worth or our gratitude to him? Perhaps your New Year's resolution uh, this year can be to bring your worship as a costly sacrifice. The most precious offering that we can make to God is often the one that feels most precious to us to give. So for some of us, that might be financially. Giving financially might feel like a real sacrifice. You, by giving, you might be forsaking something else. And if so, you're offering a precious sacrifice. For others, it might be giving time. I'm reminded uh, of a church that I was in when I, when I was in youth myself. And uh, the man who, who led the youth group most Sundays worked for Shell, and he was very senior up in Shell. So he spent his whole week traveling around the world. Very, very busy job. He earned lots of money. But what he would do on a Sunday mornings, he would lead the youth group. So he could have given money, and I'm sure he did, but he earned so much money that giving a bit of money was not really a costly sacrifice for him. But his time, of course, was a costly sacrifice because he had so little of it. And yet he offered up that work with the young people as a costly, precious offering to God. For others of us, it might be forgiveness. You may need to forgive someone even though they don't really deserve it or they haven't really asked for it. It can feel unbelievably costly to do something like that. It can feel, it can feel really like it costs you something. But you can bring that as a precious offering to God. Paul, in his letters, uh, letter to the Romans, he goes even further. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul tells us that the offering that we must bring is the sacrifice of worship of ourselves. Bring your bodies as a, uh, as a sacrifice of worship. Now you might think that what Paul is asking is actually less demanding than money or time or, or some treasured possession. But actually it isn't. It's much more. It, it asks much more of us because Paul is saying that all God really wants of us is all of ourselves, to give ourselves uh, with everything we are to him, all of our hearts, holding nothing back. 
So this is not simply about stuff. This is not about, as the Pharisees would say, you know, tithing your mint or your dill or, or your cinnamon. This is about giving, putting our own lives in his hands, trusting him, giving control to him, the ha- uh, to hand over the reins of our life to him. And the reason why Paul says that this should be our response is that be, because before in Romans he has spoken about what happens at communion, which is when we remember that God gave himself fully for us. That when God offered up his precious offering to us, that was not just a bit of himself, but it was his whole heart. It was his only son, not holding anything back. That, that's the model of the costly offering that, that we get set before us. So his invitation to us is that we put it all in his hands this year. That, uh, it might, that might be your money, it might be your stuff, it might be something precious to you. Uh, it might be your time. It might be your life. It will be your life. That's the invitation to do. And what happens then is that when you give it up, you don't lose it, actually. If you give up your life, actually, you gain it. That's what, that's what Paul says uh, elsewhere. When you give up your life, God takes it and he transforms it for his glory. You might remember the story of the young boy with the, with the loaves and the fishes. And the boy brings his little bits and then God transforms us. Uh, transforms it, uses it for his glory. We know about that boy because of the Bible and the miracle that God did with the bread and the wine. So as we come to communion today ourselves, that's a, it's a reminder that God gave everything for us, that he did not hold back uh, from uh, us anything. And it's also the invitation that we bring ourselves before him this year. So let's not bring him worship that costs us nothing. Take your inspiration from the Magi and commit yourself to wholehearted, costly worship. I thought, you've got your little treasure chest. And this was first actually only an, uh, a, a, um, something we were going to do with the children. But actually, it's, it's good sometimes for us to do something symbolic. So you've each got your treasure chest. And as we just take a few moments now to be quiet, maybe you just want to put something in that treasure chest, something that you want to offer God this year. And then when we come forward in a moment for communion, uh, we'll have a, 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 some a box here or so where you can offer up that treasure as you come forward. So, shall we pray? Lord God, we give you thanks that as we come forward for communion, we are reminded that you poured out your own life for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are worthy and that you are good. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings of the past year. And we commit to put our own lives in your hands for the coming year. And Lord, we pray as well that you would bring to mind now that which is precious to us, which we put in our treasure chests as an offering of worship to you this year. Lord, we do not want to bring you worship that costs us nothing. So we offer you our whole lives in Jesus' name. Amen.